Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Love Talk Radio. Hey, welcome to the Bobby Eaton Show, where we tell our stories our way. We're going to be playing some black history for you today. Uh, everything's good in the neighborhood. It is Black History Month, so more than a month to me. So continue on listening, and we'll be right back. Ah, you seem to realize 
Back to loving one another, black men and black women. You need to stop feuding and fighting and arguing and get back to loving one another. You're on the Bobby Eaton Show where we tell our stories our way every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. And like today, from 12 to 2, we're going to be playing some historic civil rights speeches from various different iconic black men. From the Civil Rights Movement It's Black History Month More than a month And you're all I need I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, The life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation 
and the chains of discrimination 100 years later. The Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners Will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood? I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right now in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. Let freedom ring from the smoke, Colorado. 
Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We've got to see it through. When we have our march, you need to be there. If it means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about your brother. You may not be on track, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. One day a man came to Jesus. He wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At once he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. He talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite, the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man. Because he had the capacity to project the eye into the bow and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, 
we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonial was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho, rather to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal roots rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. As soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his power. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. You know, it's possible that the priest and the Levites looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by. And he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination, let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. 
I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. While sitting there autographing books, the minute black woman came up, the only question I heard from her was, you, Martin Luther King, and I was looking down writing, and I said yes. The next minute, I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital, they allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the state and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams say. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter. came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. Said simply, dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering. And I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960. And students all over the town started sitting in at lunch counter. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream, taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy, which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961. We decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. 
Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. Black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the bread movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out, or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Malcolm X.
I think a lot of people are confused by the new Arabic name, El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. This is always, I've always uh, had the name on my passport, Malik El Shabazz. Only I only used it in the Muslim world. Well, Hajj is a title that is given to any Muslim who makes the pilgrimage to Mecca during the official Hajj season. Well, are you, will you now use Shabazz and drop X? I'll probably continue to use Malcolm X because, and I'll probably use it as long as the situation that produced it exists. We, you don't feel you don't feel that Shabazz takes the place of X. Uh, uh, my going to Mecca and going into the Muslim world, into the African world, and being recognized and accepted as a Muslim and as a brother uh, may solve the problem for me personally. But I uh, personally feel that my personal problem is never solved as long as the problem is not solved for all of our people in this country. So I remain Malcolm X as long as there is a need to protest and struggle and fight against the injustices that our people are involved in in this country. Are you prepared to go into the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of American Negroes? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Please. The audience will have to be quiet. Uh, yes, the, as I pointed out when I was in, during my travel, that nations look, African nations and Asian nations and Latin American nations look very hypocritical when they stand up in the United Nations condemning the racist practices of South Africa and that which is practiced by Portugal and Angola and saying nothing in the UN about the racist practices uh, that are that are uh, manifest every day against Negroes in this society. Even in South Africa, those Africans uh, aren't faced with bayonets and aren't faced with police dogs. I, I would be not a man. If I was in a position to bring it in front of the United Nations and didn't do so, I wouldn't be a man. Malcolm, do you intend to lead the charge uh, in the United Nations? Well, I, I find that to say you're going to lead something creates a lot of hostility, division, jealousy, and envy. Uh, I hope to, to work with any group of leaders or any group of organizations to do whatever is necessary to see that this problem is brought before the United Nations. Have you had any commitments from any nations in Africa to support you? I, I would rather not say at this time. But one thing I found in my travels, all of them look at, upon us as their long-lost brothers. You realize the implication is that you have had such commitments when you say This is your interpretation of what I said. Uh, 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 one thing that I found in all of my travels was that uh, all of the Africans, not only Africans, but the Asians and the Muslims, look upon us as their long-lost brothers. And America had actually tricked many of them uh, into uh, a hands-off policy by giving them the impression that she was honestly trying to do something to solve the problem. My argument over there was designed to prove that it is impossible for the United States government to solve the race problem. It's impossible. On your trip abroad, you said you sent a feeling of great brotherhood and that conceivably you would be working toward integration in this country now. At least this is what you're reported to have said. Any comment on it? I don't think that I ever uh, mentioned anything about working toward integration. They haven't even got integration right here in New York City. You have worse integration problems in the North than they have in the South. So if it doesn't work, in, if, if you can't bring about integration in New York City, as international, cosmopolitan, up-to-date as it's supposed to be, you will never get integration anywhere else in the country. Are you prepared to work with some of the leaders of the other civil rights organizations? Certainly. Certainly. 
certainly. We will work with any uh, groups, organizations, or leaders in any way, as long as it's genuinely designed to get results. Does your new beard have any religious significance? No, not particularly, but I do think that you find black people uh, in America as they strive to throw off the shackles of of uh, mental colonialism will also probably reflect a, uh, an effort to show to, to uh, throw off the shackles of uh, cultural colonialism, and they may begin to reflect desires of their own with standards of their own. Uh, Malcolm, some more controversial remarks was uh, a call for black people to get rifles and form rifle clubs sometime back. Do you still favor that for self-defense? I, I don't see why that should be controversial. I think that if white people found themselves the victim of the same kind of brutality that black people in this country face, and they saw that the government was either unwilling or unable to protect them, that the intelligence on the part of the whites would make them get some rifles and shotguns and protect themselves. Now, Negroes are developing some kind of intellectual maturity, too. And they can see that by having waited upon the government to protect them has been a, a wait that has been uh, in vain. So uh, any of them who live in areas where the government is not able to do its job, then we do have to get together and do a job of protecting ourselves. No Negro leaders have fought for I used to manage my team with spreadsheets. It was a nightmare. And then we switched to Monday.com. Monday.com is a platform to track everything your team is working on. We use it for all our projects, marketing, product development, HR, creative production. It gives a sense of everything falling into place. Seriously, if you manage a team, you need to use Monday.com. White man pays Reverend Martin Luther King, subsidizes Reverend Martin Luther King, so that Reverend Martin Luther King can continue to teach the Negroes to be defenseless. That's what you mean by nonviolent. Be defenseless. Be defenseless in the face of one of the most cruel uh, beasts that has ever taken the people into captivity. That's this American white man. And they have proved it throughout the country by the police dogs and the police clubs. A uh, hundred years ago, they used to put on a white sheet and use a bloodhound against Negroes. Today, they have taken off the white sheet and put on police uniforms. They've uh, traded in the bloodhounds for police dogs, and they're still doing the same thing. And just as Uncle Tom, back during slavery, used to keep the Negroes from resisting the bloodhound or resisting the Ku Klux Klan by teaching them to, to love their enemy or pray for those who use them despitefully, today uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attacks that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the, in the face of the attacks of the Klan in that well, I don't think of uh, love as, uh, in this context as emotional bosh. I don't think of it as uh, a weak force, but I, I think of love as something strong and that uh, organizes itself in powerful uh, direct action. Now, this is what I try to teach in the struggle in the South, that uh, we are not engaged uh, in a struggle that means we sit down and do nothing. Uh, that there's a great deal of difference between non-resistance 
to evil and nonviolent resistance. Uh, non-resistance leaves you and uh, leaves you in a state of stagnant passivity and bedlam complacency. Wherein nonviolent resistance means that you do resist in a very strong and determined manner. And I think some of the criticisms of uh, nonviolence, or some of the critics, fail to realize uh, that we are talking about something very strong, and they confuse non-resistance with non-violence. The goal of Dr. Martin Luther King is to give Negroes a chance to sit in a segregated restaurant beside the same white man who had brutalized them for 400 years. The goal of Dr. Martin Luther King is to get Negroes to forgive the people who have brutalized them for, uh, for 400 years by by lulling them to sleep and making them forgetting what those whites have done to them. But the masses of black people in America today don't go for what Martin Luther King is, is putting down. As you said in one of your articles, it's psychologically insecure or something of that sort. I forget how you put it. But you didn't endorse what Martin Luther King was doing yourself. Uh, I do not reject his goals of full integration and full quality rights of American citizens. Do you reject his If you don't think that he's walking on the right road, I'm quite sure you don't agree that he'll get to the right place. And if you would classify uh, his method as uh, psychologically unrealistic, I think that uh, if a man's method is psychologically unrealistic, which means the road or the means or the method that he's using, I think as a psychologist, you, you'd be very doubtful. I don't think that that's he would true. Right. If anyone has ever lived with a nonviolent movement in the South, Montgomery and through the Freedom Rides and through the sit-in movement and the recent Birmingham movement and see the reaction of many of the uh, extremists and reactionaries in the white community. Uh, he wouldn't say that this movement makes, uh, this philosophy makes him comfortable. Uh, I think it arouses uh, a sense of shame within him often in many instances. I think it uh, does something to test the conscience and establish a sense of guilt. Now, so often people respond to this by engaging more in the guilt-evoking action and attempt to drown the sense of guilt. But this, uh, this approach certainly uh, doesn't make the white man feel comfortable. It does the other thing, uh, conscience, and uh, it disturbs this, this sense of contentment. Nothing will they ever do. They will always talk it, but they won't practice it. And uh, with the Supreme Court, if the NAACP can tell me that they want a desegregation decision for me uh, 10 years ago, but yet the schools haven't been desegregated, as I say, this is a victory with no victory. Uh, it's a victory that you can talk about, but it's a victory you can't show me. So if you represent the NAACP and you are telling me about this great victory you won for me, when I look at you, I have to uh, conclude that either you have been duped yourself or else you are trying to dupe me. And in most instance, instances where the civil rights struggle is involved, there is no civil rights leader can point to me one concrete game, practical game, that black people have made in the civil rights field in this country, not only during the past 10 years, but during the past 100 years. I don't think there's any real organization to the riots. I think they grow out of the conditions that I've mentioned uh, all along. And as long as these intolerable conditions are there, as long as the Negro finds himself living every day in a major depression, uh, then uh, every city will sit on a, a powder keg and can explode over the slightest incident. I feel that killing 
is a very tragic way to deal with any social problem. There is no violent solution to the problem that the Negro confronts in this country. And this is why I have constantly said that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. After all, the Negro ends up uh, on the losing end. We can't win a violent revolution. Most of the persons killed in riots are Negroes themselves. Uh, the persons who end up not being able to get uh, milk for their children of Negroes uh, because things where they have to live are destroyed. So there's no uh, practical or moral answer uh, in the realm of violence to the Negroes' problem. But I do understand the sociological, the psychological, and the economic reasons. First, the white man and the black man have to be able to sit down at the same table. The white man has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of that Negro. And the so-called Negro has to feel free to speak his mind without hurting the feelings of the white man. Then they can bring the issues that are under the rug out on top of the table and take an intelligent approach to get the problem solved. That's the only way that they'll ever do it. We need an action program while we are Muslim, while we are Christian, while we are whatever we are. We still need an action program that will eliminate these evils that are in our community. This is what we're trying to do with the Muslim Muslim Corporation. Do you consider yourself militant? I consider myself not. Well, I think we uh, have to agree that uh, this appears to be uh, the result of an internal conflict within the black nationalist movement. So I think the first thing that needs to be done is for a conference of goodwill to take place between uh, black nationalist leaders. This was why I suggested a few days ago that the followers of the late Malcolm X and the followers of Elijah Muhammad uh, should sit down at the peace table together, so to speak, uh, and discuss this problem and try to reach some understanding. Uh, I don't think, uh, and I'm sure, uh, that nothing uh, can be accomplished by violence. Uh, it only leads to new and more complex social problems. I think it is unfortunate uh, for the black nationalist movement. I think it is unfortunate for the health of our nation. So, I may not get that way and moments in America where 
This nation's destiny has been decided. Many are sites of war. Concord and Lexington, Appomattox, Gettysburg. Others are sites that symbolize the daring of America's character. Independence Hall and Seneca Falls, Kitty Hawk and Cape Canaveral. Selma is such a place. And one afternoon, 50 years ago, so much of our turbulent history, the stain of slavery and anguish of civil war, the yoke of segregation and tyranny of Jim Crow, the death of four little girls in Birmingham, the dream of a Baptist preacher. All that history met on this bridge. It was not a clash of armies, but a clash of wills. A contest to determine the true meaning of America. What they did here will reverberate through the ages. Not because the change they won was preordained. Not because their victory was complete. But because they proved that nonviolent change is possible. We know America is what we make of it. Look at history. We are Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, pioneers who, who braved the unfamiliar followed by a stampede of farmers and miners and entrepreneurs and hucksters. That's our spirit. That's who we are. We're sojourn of truth and Fannie Lou Hamer, women who could do as much as any man and then some. We're the fresh-faced GIs who fought to liberate a continent. And we're the Tuskegee Airmen and the Navajo code talkers and the Japanese Americans who fought for this country even as their own liberty had been denied. We are Jackie Robinson, enduring scorn and spike cleats and pitches coming straight to his head and stealing home in the World Series anyway. I think we all are called to do something. We are all are called to play a role. If you think nothing's changed in the past 50 years, ask somebody who lived through the Selma or Chicago or Los Angeles of the 1950s. Our country's a different country. And we are different people. We are better people. And that's what the young people here today and listening all across the country must take away from this day. You are America unconstrained by habit and convention, unencumbered by what is, because you're ready to seize what ought to be. Because Selma shows us that America's not the project of any one person. Because the single most powerful word in our democracy is the word we. We the people. We shall overcome. Yes, we can.
That word is owned by no one. It belongs to everyone. Oh, what a, what a glorious task we are given to continually try to improve this great nation of ours. And you talk about black people. Hey, no, we haven't had it uh, this bad in a long, long time. And you talk about police violence, police crime. There is a proliferation of police assaults on the black community all over the country. You talk about. Yeah, talk about the Ku Klux Klan that they showed you in Roots. See, I'm saying this because I think that I want to just interrupt my presentation for a second and say that we cannot succumb to the notion of history that prevails in this country. And one of the reasons now I think that we're beginning to see a lot of black history because they want that to be Black history and just history, the past. Now, like the American Revolution, you know, what is the American Revolution today? We talk about revolution today. You know, I'm a communist, and I talk about revolution, and people uh, say that, uh, you know, I mean, that's some mad, raving uh, maniac. But what about the American Revolution? This country was founded in revolution, but it has become history buried dead in the past. And that's what they're trying to do with us. I mean, I think that's why they had that Martin Luther King show on TV, too. Because that's supposed to be in the past, you know, the struggles, the difficulties. Okay. You know, there are probably more political prisoners in this country that at the time when I was in jail, when people knew about political prisoners, when you knew about Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins and the LA 18 and the New York 21 and the San Quentin 6 and the Soledad Brothers. But who do you know about today? You know, hey, uh, we respect human rights in our country after all. Look at who we have in the United Nations. None other than Andrew Young. Not only a black man, but a black man who was involved in the, in the civil rights movement, uh, one of the main figures in the civil rights movement of the uh, 50s, early 60s. And you know, Andrew Young is, uh, I, don't, I don't have any problems with Andrew Young as a person, but what I'm concerned about is the way in which his presence in the UN is being utilized in order to justify a foreign policy which is basically designed to prevent the liberation struggle from unfolding 
in various countries of the third world. And a policy which is designed to keep us uh, as subjugated as possible here at home. Because you remember when Daniel Moynihan was in the uh, UN. Hey, nowhere in the world he could set foot on the continent of Africa unless he went to visit Portsmouth you know, or Ian Smith and you know, South Africa or Rhodesia. Nowhere in the world a places like that. But then you see that the fact that there is an Andrew Young in the UN relieves who can go to meet with all of the heads of state in, in Africa, relieves Carter of the responsibility of having to deal with the violation of human rights at home and the violation of human rights in places like South Africa. I don't ever hear him talking about all of the political prisoners on Robben Island in South Africa. I don't ever hear him talking about Nelson Mandela. Or I didn't hear him talk about the fact that Winnie Mandela just got rechief and arrested. I don't know how many times she just got rearrested a couple of days ago. He doesn't protest that, you know. Thank you. Of BET for having the Reverend Chavis. So today, whether you like it or not, God brought the idea through me. He didn't bring it through me because my heart was dark with hatred and anti Semitism. He didn't bring it through me because my heart was dark. And I'm filled with hatred for white people and for the human family of the planet. If my heart were that dark, how is the message so bright, the message so clear, the response so magnificent? We responded to a call. And look at what is present here today. We have here those brothers with means and those who have no means, those who are light and those who are dark, those who are educated, those who are uneducated. And so as a consequence, yeah. we as a people. There's a new black man in America today, a new black woman in America today.
If my heart were that dark, how is the message so bright, the message so clear, the response so magnificent? We responded to a call and looked at what is present here today. We have here those brothers with means and those who have no means, those who are light and those who are dark, those who are educated, those who are uneducated. And so as a consequence, we as a people. There's a new black man in America today, a new black woman in America today. This is this isn't about uh, Farrakhan. This is about respect, unity, and love for the brothers. I'm just trying to get something out of this, out of life. We're tired of being behind everything. We want to be in charge sometimes. We want to unify, and that's what this is about. Look at all these brothers around here. Do you promise to fall? Do you promise to fall? 
Black Panthers. Black Panthers. Black Panther Party. Black Panther Movement. The Black Panthers were absolutely unique. In black America, it meant that you didn't walk down the street with the same sense of safety and sense of privilege as a white person. Attack dogs, fire hoses. Police jump on you, beat you up, put the gun at your head. This is what we were going through on a daily basis. Now we have voices within the community that we're not going to continue to turn the other cheek. Second Amendment guarantees the citizen right to bear arms on public property. We're going to carry our guns and we're going to follow the police. We're going to maintain a legal distance, ready to throw down if necessary. Anyone who would approve of this kind of demonstration must be out of their mind. Stop those have to stop brutalizing our community or we're going to drive them out. The majority of the rank and file are women. We tried to change some of the fear gender roles. Women had guns and men cooked breakfast for children. And the way we walk and talk and dress, we were a phenomenon. I think the Black Panthers really understood the media. They used us to their advantage. Chairman of the Black Panther Party, and here he is. They tapped the phone. The phone is probably hooked up to the White House. You read the Black Panther Party newspaper? Yes, I do. Why? Because I am black and I'm proud. The FBI wanted to destroy the Panthers. How about justice? Justice is incidental to law and order. This was all out attack on the Black Panther Party. Every significant office had been be raided, bombed, shot, mass arrest. They were coming to kill us. When the 15-minute gun battle was over, two Black Panthers were dead. This was obviously a political assassination. It was like a slaughterhouse. doing fundraisers at places like Jane Fonda's townhouse so that we could raise money for the legal defense fund. There were 156 not guilty verdicts. That's astonishing. We don't hate nobody because of their color. We hate oppression. We refer to ourselves as the vanguard. We wanted the entire community to follow. I feel free. I feel absolutely free. You understand? My name is Chris, and before I started using Redwood, I never felt the stamina, drive, and energy I feel pulsing through my body today. These shirt-tearing pumps in the gym are unbelievable, blood rushing through my veins. And now I know what my buddies mean when they say, happy wife, happy life. After unarmed father Terrence Crutcher was shot and killed by police, hundreds protested here in Tulsa. What many didn't know is that nearly 100 years ago, on these very streets on which they were marching, hundreds of African Americans were killed in one of the darkest chapters of Tulsa's and America's history. A lot of folks around here used to whisper about it over the decades, but nobody, black nor white, wanted to talk about it. And that history was being forgotten. Before it happened, Tulsa was the scene of a thriving, wealthy black community. Black Wall Street was the most prosperous black-owned business district in 1921. This was Black Wall Street. There were hundreds of black-owned businesses, everything from banks to pharmacies to the doctor's office. And black folks were making really good money. There were even two movie theaters, all black-owned and operated. Segregation was in full effect. 
We heard that there was a gentleman who owned a plane. Is that true? Simon Barry was a pilot and owned his own uh, plane. Black folks are rich here, basically. They lived very good lives. Many of them, yes. Yes, which caused some um, envy and anger um, among white people who commented, how dare those Negroes have a grand piano in their house and I don't have a piano in my house. 1921 rolls around. What happened? Some type of confrontation between blacks and whites was inevitable because of the uh, racial climate at that time, because of the presence of the Ku Klux Klan um, in almost every aspect of our society. But on this particular day, May 31st, 1921, a young uh, black male named Dick Rowland, who worked as a shoeshine boy in downtown Tulsa, went into the Drexel building where he had been given permission to get water and use the restroom. There was a young white girl named Sarah Page who was an elevator operator. And Dick Rowland every day would go into uh, the elevator uh, with Sarah Page on this particular day. After the elevator doors closed and Sarah Page and Dick Rowland were alone in the elevator, a few moments later there was a scream, the elevator doors opened, Dick Rowland ran and was later arrested and Sarah Page initially claimed that she had been assaulted. Brown says Page never pressed charges, but authorities did and the damage was done. By the end of the day, the rumor mill said Page had been raped. As word spread, um, angry uh, whites were determined that they were going to take matters into their own hands. A large crowd of white residents gathered at the courthouse. They demanded Dick Rowland be lynched. How did the black community respond to that demand to lynch this young man? They were willing to risk their lives. They knew that they would be risking their lives to help defend Dick Rowland. And thousands of whites gathered in front of the courthouse. A white man approached a black man with a gun. He said, what are you going to do with that gun? He said, I'm going to use it if I have to. The two men argued. There was a struggle over the gun. It fired. The white resident was shot. All hell broke loose. Blacks retreated to the Greenwood District where they set up a barrier at the railroad tracks and were able for a short time to keep whites from invading their community. But because they were so outnumbered and outgunned, uh, whites eventually broke through uh, the railroad tracks and invaded uh, what was home to Black Wall Street, the Greenwood District. This was the result. 35 city blocks of the Black neighborhood burned to the ground. Historical photos show Black residents shot dead in the streets. The historical account is that at least 300 people were killed. There were children that were here that had been armed by their parents that had been told that they could come down to Greenwood and shoot and kill an innocent person. Those are the same people that we grew up with in our community, that were a part of our society. How many black people lost their lives? There's really no way of knowing exactly how many people lost their lives, potentially thousands of innocent men, women, and children. What is worse, survivors say they remember death not just in the streets, but raining down from the sky. Many of our race riot survivors um, have commented that they remembered seeing planes flying overhead, dropping bombs, dropping nitroglycerin bombs. Mrs. Hazel Smith-Jones is believed to be the last living survivor in Tulsa. She's 97 years old. My daddy wasn't at home. Just the kids and mama. They came and got us. Was it white people from the uh, city? Uh, and catastrophe, uh, fairground. 
And we was there for about two or three days to the fairgrounds. And my dad didn't know where we were. Did your family want to leave? My mother, you know, with all this stuff going on, she thought it might have been safer with them taking us out there and live with more people. Everyone called it a race riot. The opinion piece in the newspaper condoned it, calling Greenwood nigger town. Do you consider it a riot? No, ma'am. It was really murder. It was a massacre. Uh, my grandmother was awakened at night and just told to run, just get up and run. And they ran. She was only nine. They ran for days. She got mixed up from her family and lost in the chicken coop. Calling it a riot was convenient for a city run by whites. There's no statute of limitations for murder, but there is for a riot for the black victims. It was devastating. They never received any type of justice for losing their loved ones, for losing their homes and the businesses that they worked so hard for, that they built from the ground up. Every insurance claim from the Greenwood neighborhood was denied. The claims totaled about $2.7 million. Black Wall Street did recover, but never to its former glory. Do you think life is better for black folks in America now? Yeah. Some, some places, yes, some places, some places, not. If there was any clearer sign that change in race relations has happened to this community, this was it. During a march for a black father slain by a police officer, half of those marching were black and the other half white, all marching in unison, saying black lives matter. But there are stark reminders of the racism that continues to thrive in some people's hearts. So the marching and the worrying continues. Get on it. Get down on it. I 
about today's event, I made sure to be here because of it is all of our duty to stand up and to speak out and to fulfill the vision that was set by those that came before us. At this table, April 4th, 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. came 
and stood and took a courageous stand against the war in Vietnam. I remember it even though I was very young, 12 years old, but I had just joined his organization as a member of my church. He was ostracized by other civil rights leaders. He was criticized by editorial writers. Speaking out takes courage. And the current political climate of the world demands that we ensure our future will not be marked by the lack of action that we did not collectively take. Dr. King said, and I'm quoting him, a true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the country and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with landed gentry of Latin America and say, this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. End of quote. I feel like Dr. King could deliver that message today. I feel like Dr. King, if he was here at the time of Charlottesville and North Korea and all kinds of talk about ending DACA and ending looking at police accountability, he would say the same today. Don't look at his table and walk away speaking nothing. Whatever your truth, speak up, stand up. Dr. King made history because he did. It is time for all of us across races, across religions, across beliefs, gender, and preferences to stand up like Dr. King. We have humanity at stake. He communicated the idea, the fierce urgency of now. I urge you all to take heed. Now is the time. The urgency is now. Don't have enough courage to criticize those that speak out, and you don't have the courage to address what they speak to. Hey, NBC News viewers, thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Don't want me to see what you're doing to me.
jurisprudence deals with Scottsboro. Again, you can't understand unless you've got the context of the Great Depression. You have folks riding the rails looking for work just because they can't afford to, you know, I'll go find this job here. So they're just hopping on a train and riding in trying to find work wherever they can find work. Well, what happens in the Scottsboro case is you have nine black teenagers and some of them get in a fight on the train with a couple of white guys. The train stops in Scottsboro, you know, because this fight has broken out. As they're getting off the train, as the sheriff's folks are there, the white guys get off, the black guys get off, and then two white women get off. And the townsfolk are looking around going, oh. And the white women, because you've got black guys and white women in Alabama in the early 1930s, I believe 1932. It's like, whoa. And the women, 
Victoria Price and Ruby Bates, Yale rape and say that these nine black teenagers raped them. The town immediately took the nine kids, hauled them in jail. There was a one-day trial for these nine kids that ranged from the age of like 12 or 13 to 17, known as the Scottsboro Boys. In this trial, Victoria Price described a horrific rape. The problem was, was that the doctor who had examined these women said, "Mm, there's no evidence of rape here. But that didn't stop the jury. The, The doctor now didn't testify that there was no evidence of rape. But it was very clear that he knew there was no evidence of rape. And he had told folks there was no evidence of rape. These nine black teenagers were convicted. And rape was an executable offense in the 1930s. And so in a one-day trial, eight of them were sentenced to die in the electric chair. The youngest was sentenced to life in prison, in an Alabama prison. Now, there are multiple problems with that story. One, Ruby Bates, one of the women who had yelled rape, recanted that it didn't happen. Now, let me tell you what really happened here. We're prostitutes. And the Man Act, the Federal Man Act, says that we were afraid of getting, because you can't cross state lines for immoral purposes. And since we crossed over uh, out of Tennessee and Alabama, we were afraid that we might get brought up on federal charges. So we were just trying to protect ourselves. And so we just said, oh, great. Another part of the problem was that first the, the Communist Party's legal wing hopped in there and took this case up to the Supreme Court to try to protect the Scottsboro Boys. Then the NAACP hopped in. But one of the major Supreme Court decisions was the Powell v. Alabama decision that came after this. Because think about this. You're on trial for your very life for a crime that never happened. Your court-appointed attorneys, one is the town trump. I believe at the time he may have had a blood alcohol level of 0.2. I mean, lit. The other attorney in a capital case is probably in about the fourth stages of senility. So one of your attorneys is senile, looking for butterflies, and the other one is drunk, seeing butterflies. Now, the Supreme Court Even the Supreme Court in the 1930s went, really? No, come on. (laughs) Come on. This is just too much even for us. And they remanded the case. They kicked the case back down. You got to try these fellas again. Well, what happens now that they've got a real legal team is that they began to construct the train and found out that Many of the Scottsboro boys weren't even on the, in the same car as the women. So how can a rape happen if the guys aren't in that car? They were convicted once again. Case goes back up to the Supreme Court. By the time there, there were so many egregious constitutional errors in this case. 
that by the time the Scottsboro case is done, and eventually they start getting let out one by one by one by one, it took first 18 years for the last one. Imagine being in prison, in an Alabama prison. You are 17. You get out when you're 35 for a crime that never happened, a crime where one of the women has recanted, a crime where the evidence demonstrates that it, you, you couldn't have done this thing. This would be called mm, an egregious wrong. You also had several who had escaped. Imagine trying to escape from an Alabama chain gang, but they managed to get out. Michigan refused. They, Alabama tracked one down up into Michigan. Michigan refused. And think about this. A state refusing to extradite a convicted felon back to Alabama. Because Michigan looked up and said, this is wrong. This is just wrong. The last one was pardoned by Governor George Wallace sometime, I believe, in the 1980s. So imagine again basically living in the shadows for almost 40, 50 years because of something that never happened, the charge of rape. And Scottsboro speaks to so much in the criminal justice system. But what you also get in this is a series of Supreme Court decisions dealing with the right to competent counsel. Thank God. And the, the right to have a jury that is really truly a jury of your peers. Now, that is some amazing, amazing jurisprudence that is coming out of this case of horrific, egregious, um, unjust, justifiable. I, I have no more words for what happened at Scottsboro, um, but an egregious wrong that, in my eyes, has never been righted.
women and five men are deliberating the fate of the Black Panther leader on the eighth floor of that building. It is their job to decide whether he is guilty of killing Oakland policeman John Fry and wounding Officer Herbert Haynes in a pre-dawn shootout last October 28th. Two floors above the jury in his cell, Huey Newton, who has made almost no show of emotion during the eight weeks of trial, calmly awaits the decision of the jury. I talked to Newton in the jail. Uh, as far as the, the proceedings uh, thus far, that uh, uh, the courts uh, have only reflected the racist uh, attitude of the general power structure, that I haven't received a fair trial, that I should not have been indicted in the first place. I was indicted by a blue-ribbon grand jury, uh, a middle-class white grand jury that did not represent a cross-section of the community. And you say you don't feel you've had a fair trial? No. Why? Uh, number one, that the uh, the judge have, uh, has been very racist throughout uh, the proceedings, very pro-prosecution, that uh, I don't feel that I should have been tried at all. And uh, if I had been tried, if there was an inkling of, uh, of reason to try me, I should not have been tried for first-degree murder, uh, that if the judge had not been a racist, then he would have... Uh, he would have amended the charges uh, to uh, uh, to a manslaughter, uh, perhaps. Uh, the very fact that he didn't dismiss the whole charge uh, reflects his racism. Some of your supporters have said that the trial, that you are a political prisoner. That are oppressing people of color all over the world and on local levels of police, fashion police, are, are uh, suppressing, repressing uh, the white revolutionaries as well as the blacks who uh, speak of and who are attempting to attain uh, liberation. So uh, I am not standing for violence, uh, but I do stand for self defense. Back to the trial for one moment. Uh, Should we just keep on talking? Uh, what about your future? You're on the street next week. Uh, I will continue to organize the black community uh, in a political fashion. I will help in the campaign of uh, Eldridge Cleaver uh, for president of my own campaign for uh, 7th Congressional uh, District. Uh, uh, and I think this will be a, a, uh, a large job because it's going to be done from a grassroots level from door to door in the community. It will uh, consider the people on 7th Street who stand on the corners, who have lost all faith in uh, this society. As a matter of fact, all other will attempt to rehabilitate them, to show them that there is possibly some gains in uh, political action. And uh, if it's uh, sincere and uh, if the black people have uh, uh, exclusive control of it within their community.
show up in the uh, in my campaign. You say, uh, you got enough to Thank you, Understand this, you have to go back to what young brother here referred to as the house Negro and the field Negro back during slavery. There was two kinds of slaves. There was the house Negro and the field Negro. The house Negro, they lived in the house with master. They dressed pretty good. They ate good because they ate his food. But he left. They lived in the attic or the basement. But still, they lived near their master. And they loved their master more than the master loved himself. They would, they would give their life to save their master's house quicker than the master would. The house Negro, if the master said, we got a good house here, the house Negro said, yeah, we got a good house here. Whenever the master said we, he said we. That's how you can tell a house Negro. If the master's if the master's house caught on fire, the house Negro would fight harder to put the blaze out than the master would. If the master got sick, the house Negro would say, what's the matter, boss? We sick. We sick. He identified himself with his master more than his master identified with himself. And if you came to the house Negro and said, Let's run away. Let's escape. Let's separate. That house Negro would look at you and say, man, you crazy. What you mean separate? Where is there a better house than this? Where can I wear better clothes than this? Where can I eat better food than this? That was that house Negro. In those days, he was called a house nigger. And that's what we call him today because we still got some house niggers running around here.
This modern house Negro loves his master. He wants to live near him. He'll pay three times as much as the house is worth just to live near his master. And then brag about, I'm the only Negro out here. <laughs> I'm the only one on my job. I'm the only one in this school. You're nothing but a house Negro. And if someone comes to you right now and say, let's separate, you say the same thing that the house Negro said on the plantation. What you mean, separate? From America? This good white man? Where you going to get a better job than you get here? I mean, this is what you say. I, I ain't left nothing in Africa. That's what you say. Why, you left your mind in Africa. <laughs> On that same plantation, there was the field Negro. The field Negro, those were the masters. There was always more Negroes in the field then there was Negroes in the house. The Negro in the field caught hell. He ate leftovers. In the house, they ate high up on the hall. The Negro in the field didn't get nothing but what was left of the insides of the hall. Call them chitlins nowadays. In those days, they call them what they were, guts. That's what you were, a gut eater. And some of you are all still gut eaters. <laughs> the field Negro was beaten from morning till night. He lived in a shack, in a hut. He wore cast off clothes. He hated his master. I say he hated his master. He was intelligent. That house Negro loved his master. But that field Negro, remember, they were in the majority. And they hated the master. When the house caught on fire, he didn't try and put it out. That field Negro prayed for a wind. <laughs> for a breeze. When the master got sick, the field Negro prayed that he died. If someone come to the field Negro and said, let's separate, let's run, he didn't say, where are we going? He said, any place is better than here. <laughs> you got field Negroes in America today. I'm a field Negro. The masses are the field Negroes. When they see this man's house on fire, you don't hear these little Negroes talking about our government is in trouble. They say the government is in trouble. Imagine a Negro, our government, I even heard one say, our astronauts 
They won't even let him near the plant. And our astronaut, our Navy, that's a Negro that's out of his mind. That's a Negro that's out of his mind. Just as the slave master in that day used Tom, the house Negro, to keep the field Negroes in check, the same old slave master today has Negroes who are nothing but modern Uncle Tom, 20th century Uncle Tom, to keep you and me in check, keep us under control, keep us passive and peaceful and nonviolent. That's Tom making you nonviolent. It's like when you go to the dentist and the man is going to take you to. You're going to fight him when he starts pulling. So these squirts and stuff in your jaw called Novocaine to make you think they're not doing anything to you. So you sit there and because you got all that Novocaine in your jaw, you suffer peacefully. <laughs> Blood running all down your jaw. And you don't know what's happening. Because someone has taught you to suffer peacefully. The white man do the same thing to you in the street. When he don't want to put knots on your head and take advantage of you and don't have to be afraid of you fighting back. To keep you from fighting back, you get these old religious Uncle Tom to teach you and me that just like Novocaine, suffer peacefully. Don't stop suffering, just suffer peacefully. As Reverend Cleek pointed out, let your blood flow in the streets. This is a shame. You know, he's a Christian preacher. If it's a shame to him, you know what it is to me. There's nothing in our book, the Quran, as you call it, Koran, teaches us to suffer peacefully. Our religion teaches us to be intelligent, be peaceful, be courteous, obey the law, respect everyone. But if someone puts his hand on you, send them to the cemetery. That's a good religion. In fact, that's that all time religion. That's the one that Ma and Pa used to talk about. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and a head for a head, and a life for a life. That's a good religion. And then anybody, no one resents that kind of religion being taught but a wolf who intends to make you his meal. This is the way it is with the white man in America. He's a wolf, and you a sheep. Anytime a shepherd, a pastor, teach you and me not to run from the white man, and at the same time, teachers don't fight the white man. He's a traitor to you and me. Don't lay down our life all by itself. No. 
preserve your life. It's the best thing you got. And if you got to give it up, let it be even Stephen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.